Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Radical Liberal Gun Guy podcast. This is Nathan, and I am going to be introducing, uh, hopefully, my liberal friends to topics related to guns, the Second Amendment, and self-defense issues from a liberal perspective. Educate uh, the uninitiated on the mindset and basic technical information needed to understand not only civilian firearm ownership and the issues related to it, but also how that relates to police and military issues as well when it comes to uh, terms such as collateral damage and uh, police brutality and so forth. Uh, Just to introduce who I am, I am a white Suburban male. I live in Vancouver, Washington, just across the river from Portland. I am married with two children. Uh, I guess I'd call myself lower middle class. I am a software developer for a non-firearms-related company. I don't receive any money for this, and that is why you are hearing the awesome audio quality of the microphone that came with my smartphone, because that's what I'm recording this on. I was a member of my local Occupy, and I've participated in the No Coal movement and and other causes here in my local community. And the purpose of this podcast, its impetus for being, is my frustration as I listen to my, what I consider my friends, on various podcasts and news reports, such as Bill Moyers, or not so much him, but Sam Cedar on the Majority Report podcast, which I normally enjoy for just about every other topic. Rachel Maddow, again, excellent reporting on several issues, including uh, politics within the, at the state level, voting uh, issues, voter disenfranchisement issues, and so forth. She's been really good at that. But on this issue... Uh, again, I, I, I think the quality of the debate has been very poor. I would also like for this to be a possible window for people who listen to it because they're pro-gun, uh, who may not be as liberal on other issues, gay rights and, and things like that, as, as, as I am. And... I think that there are several pragmatic reasons, in addition to the moral reasons that I'll be stating, that it is good to engage with people and understand them before you simply start passing laws about them. I think that's a standard progressive liberal value that is one of many that is basically thrown under the bus when it comes to this issue. So, let's go ahead and uh, get started. This episode is not going to be as focused as future episodes. I'm going to make a, a quick pass through what I see as some of the more common laundry list of issues that come up when I listen to Best of the Left podcast, for instance, which is an aggregation of several liberal podcasts and radio shows and television shows and so forth, The Young Turks, uh, The Jimmy Dore Show, again, all shows that I love, mostly. 
And on this one issue, I think uh, I think they let the prejudice against firearms betray their liberal values. So for this issue, for this particular episode, we're going to go ahead and go through that laundry list really quick. And in future episodes, we're going to focus more on specific issues, such as magazine capacity bans and the like, and review current legislative proposals that are in the mix, and so on and so forth. But for this one, we're going to go ahead and, and, and just go through the list. There's also a YouTube channel, the Rad Lib Gun Guy, R-A-D-L-I-B-G-U-N-G-U-Y. And that channel is going to be where I link to YouTube videos that I find compelling on the subject. Uh, people who, again, I may disagree with them on this and nothing else. It will also be, and particularly politics, I'm not going to link you to you know reviews of the latest silencer, I'm not going to, uh, you know, guys blowing up, you know, watermelons with machine guns, that's not what, what that video, that is about. It's more when I believe that the topic can be elucidated better using a visual aid. So I will record a video where I demonstrate a technical issue that I think is important. Uh, one thing to remember is that a lot of the laws that we're talking about enacting have to do with specific technical properties of a firearm. And so I would just ask my liberal and progressive friends to educate yourselves on these topics before simply passing a law. Understand why a law-abiding citizen would want something rather than just saying, I don't understand why you would want it, therefore you can't. That's kind of like saying, I don't understand why a man would want to sleep with a man, so I won't let gays get married. I don't have to understand. It's, it's The impetus is on me to prove why they should not. Why they should not be able to live their life the way they want to and do the things they want to. I think progressive values generally are consistent with increasing the rights of citizens rather than decreasing them. Increasing the rights of people to do things that don't hurt others is a core tenet of being a progressive. I want people to end the day freer than they were at the beginning of the day. Now, we're not talking about making murder or intimidation or brandishing a firearm, shooting it in my suburban backyard legal. Those things are already illegal. We're talking about allowing people to own, to protect themselves, and to recreate with the firearms of their choosing so long as they don't use those to hurt other people. The technical issues of how a particular firearm poses more risk than another is something that we'll go into in more detail in, in later podcasts. Another thing I'd just like to touch on is that uh, there's almost a pathology of the worship of pacifism within liberal circles. You know, Derek Jensen writes on this issue, uh, and he's perhaps even more radical than I. 
he says that essentially this can this can reach the level of pathology to where I not only choose, which is totally within my right, that I will never violently resist if someone tries to hurt me. I will never violently resist oppression of any kind. But it, I take it that one step further and say that I'm going to obstruct someone else from resisting uh, a violent attack. The other thing that we'll discuss is, as, it, as it pertains to violence is the difference between chronic oppression, wage discrimination, things like that, versus acute oppression, which is the kind of oppression that directly... That's, that's the guy banging down your door trying to hurt you. That's the person trying to bust out your windshield with a sledgehammer. That's the oppression that's right now. That's the oppression that will end your life and won't respond to hunger strikes, to reason. And so the difference between defensive violence and offensive violence is an important distinction that we'll go into a lot on this podcast. Because there is a difference. There's a difference between clawing and scratching your perpetrator to keep him from raping you than there is in going to their house and burning it down. There's a difference between Martin Luther King having armed guards to protect him from KKK members that the police were inadequately policing and his opposition to the idea of actually taking those guns and storming the Capitol. There's a very, there's a very important distinction there that has to be recognized, that I think gets lost. So let's go ahead and look at the overall topic of this particular pod podcast episode. The idea that guns make people worse, I think, is false. I think a good person with a gun and a bad person with a gun would be the same good person and the same bad person were the guns to be taken out of the equation. Same with a good person with a knife, or a bad person with a knife. The good person might use it to slice up some steak, or chop some vegetables. The bad person might use it to perpetrate a crime. And I don't think that the tool is really the problem, and I don't think the tool really does bring out the worst in people. I don't think people really do say, you know what, I want to kill a lot of people now that I have a gun. They say, I want to kill a lot of people, and they find a way to get a hold of a gun. And they don't only use guns. The gun laws in this country have been getting less restrictive since the early 90s. Uh, Florida passed what, what is now known as a shall-issue concealed carry law. And they, as part of that bill, were mandated... <clears throat> to study the effects of any new violence. Because one of, the, uh, one of the opposition's arguments was, now that you have all these guns on the street, so to speak, which, by the way, is perfectly constitutional, keeping bare arms means bear them, but now that you have all these concealed weapons on the street, the blood will flow. 
Every time someone cuts in line in front of a convenience store, people will be murdered. It has borne out that that's just not the case. <clears throat> that, in fact, the increase of gun rights has not led to more violence. In fact, violence has been decreasing in parallel to the increase in gun violence. So if we want to look at causes of violence, increases in gun rights really aren't the place to look. The place to look is elsewhere. And my core argument is that for this episode, as we start to go through the laundry list, is that the only people that I know that are, that are made worse by firearms are progressives. They are liberals. And I'm going to break down why, and you can see if it's a compelling argument or not. First of all, there's hypocrisy in that there's a disregard for a constitutional right. This degrades the institution of using the Constitutional Bill of Rights as a protection for individual liberty. As progressives, we believe in a nation of men, I mean, sorry, a nation of laws, not a nation of men. We believe that it's not just having the right person in the right place. We need to have institutions that foster good results. We need to have institutional priorities, institutional safeguards that prevent the winds of public opinion or the winds of financial influence from buffeting against our, our, our constitutionally protected rights. Just in the way that we would stand up to protect the right of a neo-Nazi group to hold a rally, so too should we, should we stand up for every other right, even of people we don't like, even of people that disagree with us. And the reason why we would protect the right of those neo-Nazis to have a rally is because it's the people that we disagree with. It's the people with whom we, we identify the least that we protect their right to express themselves. The reason for that is we could be that person someday. It could be Occupy in Zuccotti Park that is having their rights violated, as they did. And we have to defend against that because it's not good for our institution to simply disregard pieces of the Constitution at will. The Constitution has to be the supreme law of the land. And our institutions have to respect it in order to have institutions that can be bolstered in such a way as to create the society that we want. This knee-jerk reaction and this prejudice against the tool used in a particular crime, or in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a, granted, a lot of crimes, it's the equivalent of taking away our right to privacy 
in order to improve our safety. Or allowing the government to ignore due process for the same purpose. And then we all, you know, we all heard the arguments made by the Bush administration and several others that, you know, ever since 9-11, the world is different. And so they claimed that due process was a hindrance to our safety. It was a hindrance to achieving victory or whatever you want to call it to protect us from the terrorists. They aren't going to follow the rules, so we can't either. It's also taking away the right to bear arms from our, our Second Amendment without due process. So we can agree or disagree as to whether a person can have uh, the death penalty. I personally disagree, but the death penalty, at least in theory, at least as imperfectly as it is implemented, is a due process deprivation of life. I personally believe it should be abolished. And then we look at voting rights. There are some people who lose their voting rights through due process. Some people will get their right to bear arms taken away through due process. Due process would be that you can take away my right to bear arms. You can take away, you know, remove my liberty from the Fifth Amendment through due process. I've been adjudicated, I've been, in, I've been indicted and convicted of a crime. In other words, I have to commit a crime or be deemed mentally incompetent through due process to say that I cannot exercise that right. Otherwise, that right cannot, shall not be infringed. So just as we can't say, you know, African Americans can't vote or people from Flint, Michigan can't vote, we can't say every American does not have the right to bear arms. It's a right. And to take it away from someone who has not abused it from someone who has not lashed out and used it to harm their fellow citizens is to take away a constitutional right wholesale from people who have done nothing to merit losing their rights. Now some people will say, well, even free speech isn't completely unregulated, which is true. But the difference between, let's say, an assault weapons ban, a magazine capacity cap, a restriction on the right to bear arms, or any that are being proposed that I've heard, is that there's a fundamental difference in that in order for me to be convicted of fraud, I need to commit fraud. I need to speak untruths for personal gain. I need to slander someone. I need to libel someone in print. 
you can't regulate something I haven't said yet. You can't regulate my speech just in case I'm going to slander people. Just in case I'm going to call out, you know, my garbage man and put his name and address on the internet. You can't restrict my access to post things to the internet, to participate in Facebook, in in a measure to prevent me from slandering my garbage man. You just can't do that. I have the right to speak, and I have the responsibility to bear the consequences should that speech inflict harm on that person. You know, I have the I have the right to swing my arm, and that right ends at the end of the other man's nose, right? But until I whack it into somebody's nose, I can sit in my house and swing my arm all damn day, and it's nobody's business. The other thing is that we're treated guilty until proven innocent. This is inconsistent with our values in that what we're saying, essentially, is something along the lines of every American is so incompetent that they would leave their firearm where a criminal can get to it, or they're so, so fundamentally immoral that having that 11th round in the magazine would make it sound like a really good idea to go shoot up a school. Like it would be a really awesome thing to just go shoot up a shopping mall. And that is insulting. I mean, just imagine for a moment that they're saying this about you, because that's what it is saying. They're saying that you... Given an 11th round in your magazine, given the ability to buy a semi-automatic rifle with a detachable magazine, you are a potential criminal and therefore must be restricted. We've been treated as if gun ownership itself is an offense. Rachel Maddow, in her latest episode, at least the latest that I heard from Friday, said that Basically, the NRA was the heat shield for the gun, the gun manufacturers. And we had the names and addresses of gun owners published on a New York, in a New York City new, uh, website for a newspaper. As if <clears throat> mere ownership of a gun makes you a criminal. As if mere exercise of your right to bear arms makes you the equivalent of a child molester. Regular, everyday people who own a firearm, who exercise their Second Amendment right, published on the internet as social pressure to try to get them to, I don't know, not own a gun. And all of these people were duly registered with the state, which meant they went through a background check in addition to the background check required by the guns. Many of them went through training. Many of them were actually in New York City, if I remember correctly, as a May issue. They actually had to be approved by the sheriff. We'll go into May issue versus shall issue and the reason why that is terrible from a pro progressive standpoint, the May issue part. But these were people who were approved by law enforcement to own a firearm. Yet they were treated as if they were baby murderers, as if they had something to do with Sandy Hook, as if they shot up Columbine, 
as if they provided the guns or they somehow gave moral support for these acts. Which is, which is insane. The danger of a gun is directly proportionate to the dangerousness of the person who has it. If you give a gun to a mentally sane person, to a person who is not inclined to criminal activity, not inclined to violence, it does not make them violent. And the, the gun itself does not make someone less responsible. It does not make someone decide that violence is now the answer to every situation. Again, the statistics on concealed permit holders bear this out. There are millions of us now. And a statistical insignificant portion of that have committed any violent crime with their firearms. Now, I do agree that children should have restrictions on some of their rights in general. We agree that the mentally incompetent should not be allowed to own firearms. Again, through, through due process, with controls to make sure that someone just doesn't deem everyone who's African American, or everyone who's homosexual, or everyone who is not like them, you know, there must be safeguards in place whenever you talk about removing someone's rights. And that includes the Second Amendment rights, just like it includes the First Amendment, the right to vote, the, you know, and all, all of the other rights. So, please save the straw men for another debate. We're talking about violence here. We're talking about solving a problem. So, most of us are not saying send children to school with weapons. That's ridiculous. There's a few out there. But uh, let's not trust the debate to be a quality debate when we're only debating Ted Nugent. Now, blanket restrictions are not consistent with this. Because, again, we, we eliminate due process. We simply say nobody is competent. Nobody is a conscientious citizen. Nobody is responsible enough. And that these pieces of metal and plastic are so intimidating to us. They're so vile and so evil that we can simply declare every citizen in the United States incompetent of exercising their rights. Now, one of the things that Tom Hartman likes to do is bring up the slavery links to the Second Amendment, how the whole purpose in his mind, because if you cherry-pick you know, pieces of the debate in the Constitution, you can pick whatever you want. And chances are, you can pick out the interest of slavery, the big oil of its day, in any part of the Constitution. Any part. The Declaration of Independence and the First Amendment were both written 
by a slave owner named Thomas Jefferson. And the First Amendment is based on a law authored by said slave owner in a slave state. Again, the entire original Constitution and most of the original amendments were, they had to pass muster with the slave states. Slavery was a thing. And we have moved past it. We haven't completely moved past racism, but we have moved past slavery. Well, maybe we'll talk about the prison thing later on. But, but for the most part, we kept the parts that were still valid. Now, the ironic thing about this argument is that the deacons of truth and justice that protected the King family for, for a time, and they also protected the civil rights of African American communities in the South, fell along the same principle that he defines. The, the fear that Tom Hartman was citing was that the slave owners in the slave states were afraid that if the North, which was rapidly rising in population, rapidly uh, increasing in the number of non-slave owners and in people who were per perhaps abolitionists, <clears throat> the fear was that if we didn't have a militia, the federal government would underfund the militia in the South, would give it inadequate arms and equipment to protect them from slave rebellions as a, as, a, as a measure to, you know, kind of a backdoor to get rid of slavery. And that, quite certainly, there were people who argued that. Now, the Deacons of Truth and Justice, the Black Panthers and others, used their right to bear arms in exactly the same way. You have a police force that isn't really interested in tracking down that person who burned down Martin Luther King's house, who isn't really that concerned about tracking down the person that lynched a black man during the civil rights era. So they said, we'll police it ourselves. And they obtained firearms and they protected their own community because the state refused to. In more modern, you know, in modern times, what we look at is often the possibility of a natural disaster where for days or weeks we may have neighborhoods that are unprotected and we may have to protect them ourselves. And we would like to have the equipment to do so. One of the things to do is people who would be, people who have a propensity to criminal activity in the first place now see an opportunity in those types of situations. They have the opportunity to carry out violent actions while first responders are busy with flood relief, with getting people off of roofs of houses in flooded areas, with disaster relief, finding survivors and things like that. It allows us to maintain our own safety in the meantime while we may not have roads between us and the first responders. We call the police, they just might not be able to get there. But again, the, the, the slavery aspect of that was flipped on its head right before the 60s 
the, the, the late 60s, the 68, I believe it was, when we passed, started passing more laws against open carry of firearms. Started passing laws against uh, owning several types of firearms. And those were very directly linked to the fact that African-American communities who felt inadequately protected by the government were trying to protect themselves. Essentially, once the African-Americans started arming themselves, we started outlawing arms. Similar to that was the concealed carry laws, the concealed carry bans earlier. Several of those were out of concern that free, free black men may be roaming the streets with guns under their coats. In addition to a different mindset of the time, which was, this was back when it was okay, it was generally a reasonable thing to walk around with a gun on your hip, and if you hid a gun underneath your jacket, then you were assumed to be up to some nefarious deed. Well, society is somewhat flipped on its head at this point, but we'll go into that more later. Now, another thing that, that we like to, that we hear thrown around a lot, is that uh, Article 1, Section 8 creates the militia and it gives the federal government the power to create the National Guard and there you go, there's your militia. Well, I'm a little puzzled then as to why we have a Second Amendment that says essentially that we are all the militia. How this works is the same way that slaves are no longer three-fifths of a person in the United States for census purposes, for voting purposes. The reason being, we have another amendment, the 13th, which outlaws slavery. Now that slavery is outlawed, we no longer count slaves as three-fifths of a person. Amendments that come later, when they conflict, supersede amendments that come before. doesn't work the other way around. Otherwise, we would still have slaves and it would still be counted as three-fifths of a person because you could always go back to the original document and see that it's still in there. Our voting system would be different. Women would still not be able to vote. Right? All of these things have been added. They supersede the language that comes before, as they would be expected to. This is the only case where, as a liberal, we're supposed to throw that logic out the window and say, that the amendment that came later is superseded by the document to which it is an amendment. Now, the other thing that people say about this particular point is that the overwhelming military might of the United States is not only a an insurmountable obstacle should we ever as a people decide to rise up uh, and reassert our rights. So if the state decided to become a violent dictatorship, you couldn't fight it anyway. And you no longer need the armed citizen. It's anachronistic because we have this giant military. But we're the same people that argue that we shouldn't have this giant military to begin with. 
And so is it not consistent with the idea of a free state not having this giant, you know, world, worldwide military that the Second Amendment declaring us all the militia is a protection that, that allows us to spend less of our national wealth on this military designed to stand athwart the world. Doesn't it give us the argument that, yes, we should have some tanks, mothballed, mostly. We should have some airplanes, because those are expensive to make, expensive to develop. You need to keep those at a reasonable state-of-the-art fashion. You have to have a navy. You can't build a navy overnight if somebody comes at you. Yet, we still have a safe nation from, from foreign attack because, as you know, it's apocryphal, I know, but the concept is there that, you know, we could not evade Amer invade America because there will be a gun behind every blade of grass, which 350 million guns floating around is a deterrent factor for anybody who did decide to come over and cause us any harm. It's an argument for not having that 700 or 900 billion, David K. Johnston called it about 900 billion a year in military spending. So the point is, rather than saying you can't defend against the military because it's so huge and you're not necessary because our military is so huge, why not have such a not huge military? And we would actually be more in line with our constitutional pr uh, principles, at least the stated principles. And the Second Amendment also has a couple of other interesting pieces to it. Besides, you know, of course, keep and bear arms does not mean keep in the armory of the state and bear them when the state gives you permission. That would be a unique uh, personal right guaranteed by the Constitution. Do we get to vote when the state says at its order? We get to vote when, but they don't tell us if we can. There's a vote at this date, and you can vote if you are a citizen. They don't tell you how to vote, whereas in the militia, they would tell you how to shoot your gun, who to shoot it at, who is the enemy. They would tell you when you could bear it. That isn't the right to keep and bear arms. The other piece of this, linguistically, is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It doesn't say the people shall have the right to keep and bear arms. It says the, the right of the people to bear arms, to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. What this means is it recognizes a pre-existing right. A right of Englishmen that says, we already have this right. From the 1689 Bill of Rights, you see where they granted it to Pro Protestants after it had been denied them. As part of the, as part of making good on their rights as as Englishmen, so the right to keep the right to keep and bear arms was always there. The Second Amendment cements that. It says, "This is a right that shall not be infringed." 
Now, one of the big problems that we have when, when discussing how to prevent violence is the Grover Norquist style of argument. It's just like the people who want to build a wall for immigration. And Grover Norquist always talks about spending, 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 spending. And the liberal side of that argument is, well, doesn't that spending get us bridges? Right? If there's two sides of that balance sheet, right? There's also income. There's also equity. Right? So we have... Grover Norquist always talking, and, and his ilk always talking about, oh, we spend too much. We spend, 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 spend. We need to stop spending. Well, spending can get you things. Right? So while you may look at the, at the balance sheet and say, oh, well, we're spending a lot. It looks daunting. But when you start to stack up the value provided by schools, the value provided by police officers, the value of the bridges and the roads, the parks, the campgrounds, the forests that are maintained to protect them from being developed. When you look at the children that are fed, spending has that other side to it. The problem with firearms discussion on the left is that we allow ourselves to ignore any potential benefits. The problem with this logic is it doesn't get to the root of the problem. It doesn't get to the root of why violence occurs. It doesn't get to the root of what we can change about our society such that we end up in a in a world where guns aren't simply replaced by baseball bats and knives and axes, machetes, in which people who may have shot their spouse now just beat her to death with their fists. It doesn't get to the root of the problem, and it doesn't really solve the problem. Unless the problem is narrowly defined, spending, 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 as guns. Similarly, when we look at immigration, if we think that people coming across the border without going through our immigration process is a problem, the liberal argument is, or at least the radical liberal argument, would be that we shouldn't look at it as building a wall across the border. Right? The wall across the border is not the problem. The people coming across are a symptom of a bigger problem. It's a symptom of an economic system where we drown their markets with cheap grain, put people out of work, where our drug war destroys crops through what's essentially a chemical weapons attack against all of South America and, and Mexico. We know that the, the root of the problem is not that people are coming across the border. The root of the problem is that we're driving them here. And we need to look deeper. And so when somebody says, I've got a bunch of people in my town that are not 
here legally, which some of us may not even think is a super huge problem on our end. The problem is that the case that we have to make is that rather than just building a big fence with automatic, you know, sentry machine guns sitting on top of it and, and electric razor wire, is to remove the conditions that force those people across the border. Just as we would look at what conditions cause someone to be violent. Look at why we have gang violence, why we have mass shootings, why we have you know, spousal abuse. And look for ways to interdict that that will actually solve it rather than say, oh, well, today he used this, so we're going to try to ban that. It's also very similar to the idea of school spending versus other spending, right? So, supposedly we spend so much on schools. Again, that's a bit of a distortion because we have a ballooning student loan bubble looming at us. But the liberal argues that testing is not necessarily the answer. And coming down on teachers is not necessarily the answer. That the reason some of these other places that spend less than us on that line item for paying teachers and administrators and school buildings, the reasons why they get better results have to do with the fact, perhaps, that their medical system prevents children from going to school with chronic illnesses, with, with, with toothaches, and their social, social system, their economic system, is such that students are unlikely to go to school hungry. Again, it's, it's, an, it's an oblique approach to a problem. But rather than chasing the symptoms, we start looking at the roots, which again is a liberal value that is betrayed when it comes to violence. So we replace the problem of violence in our society with gun violence. And we completely discount the benefits of guns, how many people they save, how many people derive enjoyment from them, from target shooting and, and, and from feeling safer when they have to wait on the bus platform at night. We discount that. We discount how many children have been saved by their parents wielding a gun or by themselves wielding their parents' gun, as has happened. We discount the benefits of civilian firearms ownership and only focus on the ill effects. And when you remove one side of the balance sheet from anything, you distort the issue to the point of not having a good debate. So if you were to only look at Al Gore's residence electricity bill and not see the other side of the balance sheet, which is how much of that electricity bill is him working into the night on environmental issues, then Al Gore looks like a huge environmental offender, which he might be anyway. But in, you know, for this example, 
that's what you're doing. You're saying he burns this much electricity. Therefore, his carbon, his carbon footprint is bigger than this other guy. Well, that other guy probably isn't working into the night on environmental issues and solving environmental problems and environmental activism. So you have to look at the whole picture, even with guns. Probably one of the most egregious of these offenses of liberal values is victim blaming. It's okay to blame the victim if they own guns, if they were a quote-unquote gun nut. It's okay to blame Adam Lanza's mom, even though she was murdered by her son. And this happens many times. I am the first to admit that I need school teachers to help me out if my child is having such issues that they may murder somebody because no matter how much I care about them, no matter how much I pay attention, I have that bias that it is so inconceivable to me that even in their most difficult time they would ever murder me in my sleep to get a hold of my guns and commit an atrocity. And to ask Adam Lanza's mother to have seen that coming, to ask most of these parents of, of these mass shooters and so forth to say, why didn't you know that your son, that your flesh and blood was a monster? I think that's a bit unreasonable. And that's where, as a community, we need to look at this a little bit more clearly. But as a progressive, I think it's disgusting because it's the only place where it's allowed. You're not allowed to victim blame in any other case, unless they own a gun. You know, Fort Hood was given as an, as, as an example on the Young Turks. They said, oh, well, there's a place with lots of guns. Which makes it sound like they were just incompetent or stupid. So the Young Turks is talking about how Fort Hood is, it's the military, they got lots of guns. Well, especially in CONUS, especially in the, in the United States at a military base, it's a gun-free zone. They severely restrict guns on federal property, especially a military base. I was in the Marine Corps for seven years. Outside of the actual shooting range, I carried live rounds, well, and guard duty, a few times on guard duty, probably three times that I carried live rounds. In seven years, they just, they'll, you'll have your rifle with you many times for a ceremony with no magazines. They have some guy off to the side who's got a couple of magazines of live rounds for security to make sure that somebody doesn't just walk up and steal all your guns. But the idea that you're all just walking around slinging your guns around like John Wayne, it, it, it's, it's just false. And I think it's irresponsible for news reporters not to know this before they start popping off. There's also that sense that when you listen to a podcast and you have these people in your ears while you're sitting in traffic or on the bus waiting on the max platform or you know the light rail platform or whatever, walking down the street, you have these people in your ears and, and you hear them and it's 
a very personal medium. You're kind of having a conversation. It's a one-way conversation, yes. But you develop, with the, with the radio shows, with the podcasts that you listen to, you develop this kind of personal link. And I couldn't help, when I heard Cliff Schechter and Sam Cedar on the Majority Report, laughing about how this is this gun nut or that gun nut, particularly, like I said, Adam Lanza's mom, who, again, is the first victim of that crime. How they were laughing at her and wondering, what would it be like if somebody broke into my house and I didn't successfully stop them? And these guys are reading the story, and they go, oh, well, the guy had a gun. I'm sure his family, when they were murdered, was happy that their dad was a gun nut. That's what I felt. And it's disgusting. There's even a vague anger at potential victims who defend themselves. Right? We want to second-guess them. And, you know, if a 15-year-old girl uses her mom's gun to protect herself when she's home alone, as so many children are, my own children have to spend some of their time here alone while, my, while their mother and I are both at work. That there'll be people who are so upset that a child got a hold of a gun, they'll disregard the fact that that child defended themselves against a violent intruder. A violent intruder who not only came into their home, but came to their closet door looking for them. But somehow it's worse that that child had access to a gun than the fact that that gun saved that child's life. Potentially saved that child from unspeakable acts against them. Another problem that we have is legislating, reporting policy proposals based on ignorance. So we have focuses on cosmetic features. We have uh, journalistic ignorance of guns, which in America, if you don't understand anything about guns, what, I, I, I just don't understand. Here's the thing is, there's 350 million guns in America. There are more guns than people. And we'll go into why that is. We'll go into why that's not an unreasonable thing. There are also more knives than people. But we'll go into that. If you don't understand the basics of firearms ownership, what business do you have reporting for the United States? That's like not knowing anything about Islam and reporting on Iraq. If you have no idea what Islam is all about and what, you know, that's a huge feature of that. It's not the only feature of that country, but it's a big one. So that's what this podcast is here to help you with. I'll help you with the basics. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing gun gear porn like some of the YouTube videos and stuff that are out there that gun enthusiasts or aficionados like to look at to figure out what gun to buy or 
things like that. That's not what this is about. But I will help from a gun owner's perspective to help people, again, who are not well-versed in what is up with guns, help you learn the basic terminology and the basic features and the difference between what a semi-automatic pistol works like and what a double-action pistol works like and, and what a, what's a revolver versus a semi-auto and, and so on and so forth, just so that you can have that basic understanding if you don't have it. But again, trying to legislate from ignorance is a direct violation of everything that I've been told is supposed to be a core value as a, as a liberal progressive. Now, the other problem, speaking of progressive, is that many of these reforms are regressive. Regressive as in a regressive tax. Regressive like voter registration or voter ID. So voter ID, the problem with voter ID is that it's designed to make it expensive and inconvenient and perhaps even downright impossible for a person to find a, a, a birth certificate for a, you know, a person that was born before birth certificates were stored properly. Right? They're too old to have their original birth certificate or it was, went down with a house in a fire and so they can never vote. Right? People who are too poor, too unconnected, they don't have control over their schedules, they don't have access to transportation to go three counties over to get to the nearest DMV. That's what voter ID was designed to suppress. Many of these gun laws are the same way. So, when you add fee after fee and then mandatory insurance and all these other things, you don't make it so hard for a millionaire to own a gun that wants to, wants to own a gun, or a doctor or a lawyer. You make it hard for a poor person to own a gun. Often, the people who are in the most high-risk areas, the person who does have to walk through that neighborhood that you and I can afford to move out of, the neighborhood that I don't have to live in, because I have that economic level of privilege that I don't have to live in a neighborhood where there are shootings every day. Ironically, the people who do live there are going to be priced out of being able to defend themselves should, should anything arise. They're not going to have the ability to protect themselves from the criminal element that's concentrated in impoverished areas like where they live. In fact, those places are where gun restrictions are are the highest. And like I said, when you talk about gun insurance, which we'll go into that later because that is a whole other kind of worms making me pay insurance on a constitutional right, that the, the most restrictive gun bans are on places that people are in the most danger, that we acknowledge that. So what we do is we simply declare the whole neighborhood criminal. The whole neighborhood does not have the right to, to bear arms in their own defense, in defense of their children that are trying to walk to school, in defense of their homes in a neighborhood plagued by violence. We call them unworthy of defending themselves. 
<clears throat> but then we grant exemptions for the rich and the powerful to protect their property and their persons. So if I'm a convenience store clerk working the graveyard shift in a bad neighborhood in, you know, in a big city, I can't carry a gun as I walk home through that dark neighborhood in the middle of the night. I am at the mercy of whatever criminal element may be in the area. But if I'm a millionaire who lives on the other side of that town, I can hire a bodyguard who's armed with state-of-the-art weaponry and a security guard for my gated community to provide that protection. That's regressive. We basically make gun ownership and being able to buy ammunition, you know, because we're talking about background checks on ammunition. <laughs> so I want to buy a box of ammo so I can go practice with this gun so I don't do that mythical civilian spraying the room due to incompetence. So instead of that box of 9mm practice ammo being 9 or 12 or $16, now it's $35 because i got to pay a background check fee. Now I can't afford to do it anymore. It ignores, again, the history of civil rights and how gun laws were often written because oppressed communities started protecting their own security, started providing their own security to protect themselves from a criminal element. Because I do believe there does come a point when if the police are not going to protect the community, if the police systematically ignore a community's security needs and only pop in like an invading army to drag off young, young men to jail for victimless crimes and then leave the neighborhood to criminality for the rest of, you know, for the rest of the time, that yes, people should have the right to defend their community. And this is also where a particular phrase, the Saturday Night Special, a particular term, the Saturday Night Special comes from. The idea that these are disposable guns that can be bought by criminals. And perhaps criminals would buy them. But so would someone who doesn't have the money to buy a $700 Glock. So one person's disposable criminal gun is another person's the only thing they can afford to protect themselves. Basically, we're caught between a rock and a hard place on that one. Because either you buy an expensive, state-of-the-art, high-quality firearm, in which case you are a gun nut, or you buy a cheap, reasonably priced, minimal firearm just to give you some level of protection, and you're buying a Saturday Night Special. There is no winning. Now there are some other problems with the logical inconsistency, and one of them, I call it the Westworld theory of self-defense, of, of the Westworld theory of guns and self-defense, right? So guns can only kill good people, with the possible exception of when soldiers and cops use them. 
right? So only criminals can effectively use guns to kill good people. Unless, maybe, 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 if you're a soldier or a cop, maybe then the gun will detect this fact and work properly. But if you're a person, the little sensor, just like in Westworld, for those of you who aren't old enough to have seen this movie, aren't old enough to, uh, to, to, to know what this movie is, they have this Westworld, right? And it's, it's a theme park where there are these robot bad guys that you get to get in a gunfight with. And to protect the human occupants of this town, of this theme park, when you point your gun at a human, a little sensor on the front of it detects that that's a human, and your gun will, will be rendered inert. It won't go off. That way you can get in gunfights with the robots all you want, and you can't kill the good, you can't kill the regular people. Well, I've taken my gun apart, stripped it down to its component pieces. I have yet to find such a chip or electronic device in there that can detect that my DD-214 was issued and I have been released from military service. That can do a criminal background check on me or psychological evaluation and determine that I must be determined to kill somebody with it so that it will work properly. And otherwise, all it will do is point at my face and shoot me in the eye. This is ridiculous. <laughs> the gun shoots who you pointed at. It shoots what you pointed at. There's also the fact that the idea that there's this huge number of accidents in which we throw suicides. Suicides are not an accident. A person who is suicidal, if we want to stop suicides, we need to find out what makes people want to commit suicide, not what they do it with. If you ban guns, they hang themselves. They jump off a bridge. There's numerous and creative ways that people commit suicide. And if you own a gun and a pool, your children are 100 times more likely. And these numbers are a little bit old. Gun crime has gone down, or gun violence has gone down at least. I'll have to upgrade to uh, update this in another episode. But at least at the time of the, I think it was 2001 was the article, you're 100 times more likely to lose a child to your pool than you are to a gun. And the simple fact is most human beings, most Americans, are conscientious enough to know that a firearm is not something you leave laying around. They're more likely to lock it up. They're more likely to make it inaccessible to their children. Whereas pools, we don't have as good a record on that. I know that this sounds like an inapt comparison, but if saving one child is what matters, then you would do better to ban pools or to require fences around pools than you would to ban guns. when it comes to home accidents and so forth. This is closely related, the Westworld fallacy is closely related to the just another gun fallacy. It's almost identical as a matter of fact, I guess. So, my challenge to anybody who gets a hold of this podcast, send me examples of where an active shooter defense 
caused this huge number of innocent casualties to where a person actually drew their gun in self-defense and caused lots of people to die because they sprayed their bullets indiscriminately into the crowd trying to hit the active shooter. Or even the person invading their home. Yes, there are accidental shootings. But the idea that injecting just another gun into the scenario, that that other gun is just the exact equivalent to the Adam Lanza gun, to the Columbine guns, that, that that's exactly the same is patently ridiculous. One of those guns is pointed at the shooter. You know, it's like saying that the saying that the, the, the guns the GI the American GIs and the and the British had in World War II were just another gun compared to the Nazi guns. It's ridiculous. Now there were examples, such as in the Bank of America shootout, uh, the infamous one where these illegally modified uh, semi-automatic rifles were illegally modified to make them fully automatic. There was a concealed carry permit holder there that used his firearm to try to keep the robbers from commandeering his truck and he was shot to death. He was ineffective as were something on the you know dozens of police officers ineffective at stopping them with a handgun. They were heavily armored and was killed. But he didn't kill innocent people in the process. He shot at them. He shot at the bad guys. And it just so happened that it didn't stop them. The Clackamas Town Center shooter, there was a concealed carry permit holder, and many people claim that he stopped it. I don't think that's the truth. Uh, I'll post a video on my YouTube of Yankee Marshall's uh, there's a YouTube channel called The Yankee Marshall. I'll post a video on there uh, of his that, that really addresses this. It really says everything I've got to say about it. But one of the things that he didn't do is he didn't spray the crowd. He looked at the situation. He pointed his weapon at the, at the attacker who at the time was clearing, trying to clear a jam from, I don't know, the hearsay is that the guy never oiled the gun after he got a hold of it. But the attacker was clearing a jam in his gun and the concealed carry permit holder had a Glock pistol, pointed it at him, but, but saw people running behind him and decided he didn't have the shot. And as Yankee Marshall was, will describe, I know the location, I've eaten in that food court. There's a good chance that he was far enough away that getting a good solid hit on the bad guy would be hard enough that he would be worried about hitting bystanders behind him. And so he conscientiously did not take the shot. He didn't take a shot he couldn't make. The same thing is true of a concealed carry. Uh, I don't think they have permits in Arizona, but the, there was a civilian who had a concealed carry from concealed firearm at the Gabby Gifford shooting. And people like to highlight that he almost accidentally shot somebody, but he didn't. He didn't pull the trigger. Again, this is a sign that this person conscientiously evaluated the situation before pulling the trigger. He didn't just bring out his gun and just start more bullets flying into the crowd. 
He pulled his gun. He saw someone with a firearm in a hectic, stress-filled, bullets flying, and he had his gun leveled at a, at a plainclothes police officer. The plainclothes police officer identified himself, and the guy put his, the guy stopped pointing his gun at him. And the plainclothes officer didn't shoot him either. So in other words, it would have been ideal that those two people, the plainclothes officer and the person carrying the firearm, would have immediately incapacitated that uh, Lautner character, I think it was. But they didn't. But th what they also did not do was make the situation worse. They, what they did not do was spray the crowd. Because they were law-abiding good people who have trouble shooting even when there is a bad guy. Just like most soldiers do. We'll go into that. How soldiers even have trouble pulling the trigger. So the idea that someone is going to prematurely just start firing randomly into the crowd to defend themselves in an active shooter type scenario, these cases prove that that's not the case. That these people still evaluate their abilities and make decisions that, in hindsight, we may say it would have been better if they would have stopped the bad guy. But at the very least, they did not make the situation appreciably worse in the process. Again, the difference... The problem with the just-another-gun argument is that one stops imminent harm. One of them is aimed at someone who is violating the crowd. One is aimed at someone who is trying to harm a family. There is good violence. Not good in the sense that we want more of it. It's like chemotherapy. It scars everyone involved. And I've said many times, and just about everybody I know who owns a gun says the same thing. I hope I go to... I, I hope I go to the grave an old man with zero on the scoreboard for kills, with zero on the scoreboard for shooting people. I do not want to ever shoot anybody. But it is better that I shoot someone trying to break into my home than I let them have free reign on my family. I, find it, I, I would find it immoral to not do what I can for some abstract principle of nonviolence, to let someone have their way with my son and my wife and my daughter than to have to pull the trigger and deal with the psychological damage that that would do to me. It's invasive surgery to solve an imminent problem. So it's not just another gun in the situation. Now, Violence is never the answer is where this, the previous one, comes from. Violence is never the answer. There are times when someone is trying to harm you or people around you where violence is the only answer. There are times when violence is the only way to solve a problem. It's unfortunate. But, you know, Gandhi wrote a letter to Hitler urging him not to be violent. It 
didn't work. Sometimes there are people that are imminently trying to harm someone and violence is the only answer. And sometimes at a higher level, even at a state level, you get problems like, you know, like I said, a Hitler. <laughs> violence is the only way. Sometimes violence is the only answer. Now, what I'm talking about here is not only that it was historically false that, that violence was not used in the civil rights struggle. At least defensive violence. That violence was never used in India in an actual offensive form. There are many who argue very persuasively that the reason why Gandhi got his support was because more violent elements were the alternative. You can either have your colonial government, you know, assassinated over and over again by armed dissidents, or you can diffuse support for those armed dissidents and have them go over to the guy who preaches nonviolence. And they chose the latter. And the other difference is that we're talking about, mostly on, on this channel, we're talking about acute versus chronic violence. So Martin Luther King didn't say, let's take our guns and go attack the governor's mansion in order to get what we want. Let's take our guns and attack Washington, D.C. to get what we want. That's exactly the opposite of his message. But he at one point filed a for a concealed weapons permit and was denied because they had the right to do that, which we'll get into again, on the, as I said, in a future episode, we'll talk about may issue and shall issue carry permit type regulations. But he had armed guards guarding him. That's because it doesn't, it doesn't improve his struggle to have some random KKK member walk up and shoot him in the head. That doesn't forward the struggle. That's a waste of his talent and abilities. Now, he was actually convicted, uh, or actually a court found that the U.S. government shot him in the head from a distance. And we can generate no-win no scenarios for forever, but basically what it came down to is for much of the possible acute violence he would have suffered, he had armed civilians protecting him. Another branch of this is that the idea that a teacher or an airline pilot that has a gun is injecting more guns into the situation. Yes, more guns are in the situation. I don't think that my son's teacher, who, whom I just had a conference with not too long ago, he didn't strike me as the kind of guy who would just open up on the kids on a bad day were the type of guy who was so irresponsible that he would leave his gun sitting on his desk while he went out for, uh, for a restroom break. I have a little bit more faith in them than that. Now, should we probably require school officials, were they to get a concealed carry permit or some, some such thing, should we probably require them, similarly to what we do with airline pilots, to follow certain rules 
if they were to carry on campus? Absolutely. I wouldn't require them to do so. I wouldn't want it to be part of their job description. But in order to get that, in order to, to be able to carry on school campus, yes, they would have to, you know, perhaps take some freely available training on the weekends from the local police department. But do I think, even without that, that a kindergarten teacher, as we saw at, at Sandy Hook, they threw their bodies in front of the students to protect them. Do you think they would just open fire if there were a risk of those students being hit? Do you think they would just start spraying the room? I don't think so. I generally have a little bit better... I generally see teachers as being a little bit more conscientious than that. And again, it comes down to the same argument as before, is we just don't see these scenarios where that concealed carry person, uh, the person carrying concealed on the scene just starts spraying the room when a bad situation hits. They tend to actually be a little bit more hesitant to use their firearm than some police officers have proven. So, in closing, I don't think guns bring out the worst in people. I think guns bring out the worst in liberals. They focus on an object rather than the causes of violence and murderous intent. They focus on restricting law-abiding citizens rather than detecting and intervening with potential criminals. They're based on ignorance and bound to be ineffective because of that fixation on the tool. There's this intense hatred of fellow citizens that have done nothing to harm anyone. Blaming an entire group that comprises something along the lines of 47% of Americans who own a gun. Conflating them with some outliers. This is really no different than blaming all Muslims for terrorist attacks. Remember, religion is a choice, right? Just like owning a gun is a choice. And they're both constitutionally protected. I don't blame all Christians when an abortion doctor is killed. And it doesn't really matter if the Second Amendment is a, you know, if the, if the right to bear arms is a constitutional right or not. We have to weigh when we go to restrict someone's freedom for anything, for owning an automobile, for putting a pool in their backyard. We have to weigh that and say, all right, are there 50 million of these people that never hurt anybody? And there's a few that do? Are we going to ban that whole activity based on that? We don't eliminate rights without due process. If we really think that the Second Amendment should not be part of the Constitution, if we really don't believe, as I do, that the right to keep and bear arms is a, is a badge of trust in the citizenry, that there's no higher, that, that, that there's few ways that you can tell your citizenry that you trust them more than saying you have the right to keep and bear arms, you have the right to defend your hearth, your home, your country, 
if you really think that that's anachronistic, then why don't we use that old-fashioned tool called democracy to amend the Constitution and end the debate? If you really think that's going to work, and you really think that that's worthwhile, then do so. In the meantime, let's not debauch the institution that guarantees our rights. Let's not blame victims. It's bad enough that someone has their house broken into. It's bad enough that Adam Lanza's mother got killed on her bed by her own child. It's bad enough. We don't blame victims. That's disgusting. And I'm not just defending her because she owned a gun. If someone said that somebody got raped because they wore a short skirt, you know what? If a woman skinny dips with me in a hot tub, that does not give me permission to rape her. The same is true. We don't blame victims. We don't laugh at Harry Reid because his father killed himself. As they did on the Jimmy Dore show recently. We stop showing this lack of faith in our fellow citizens. Where all of a sudden a teacher can't be trusted to care for their children. All of a sudden the teachers are all potential child abusers, potential murderers and thugs, if they were to decide that they didn't want something like Sandy Hook happening at their school, if they were to carry a firearm on school grounds, even if given permission, they would just become armed enforcers somehow. And suddenly our value of thinking that teachers are the ones that defend democracy, not soldiers. Soldiers protect our ass. Teachers defend our democracy. Teachers defend our our, our fundamental liberties by preparing our children, by helping us prepare our children to become full citizens and to, for the, the sake of a convenient, expedient argument to now criminalize teachers, as many people do, that's disgusting. And it shouldn't happen ever. If the debate point is valid, it doesn't require that kind of ridiculousness. We shouldn't all have to prove that we're not murderers. We shouldn't be willing to restrict millions over the criminality of a few. Again, it doesn't matter even at this point that it is a constitutional right or not. How can you restrict millions of people because a small handful of them use the same object for a crime? We need to get over the classism that we like to imagine that all of these people are poor, toothless rednecks. There are millions of potential Democrats in this country. There are millions of potential labor activists. There are millions of people who would love to see their minimum wage go up, that would love to see their Social Security benefits provide a comfortable retirement, that would love to stop seeing their jobs shipped overseas. Millions that choose not to either participate in the political process or not to join the Democratic Party in that, in, and push it in that direction, 
because there is a clear constitutional right that's part of their culture that's being taken away from them even though they, have, they haven't committed a crime. They've committed no crime and somebody's obviously trying to take away what is obviously their right. And so there's so many other issues that these people would be right on board with. No wonder rural areas lean blue. We can argue whether, you know, we can have a, a there can be an intelligent debate as to whether, you know, single payer health care is constitutional or whether, uh, you know, the FDA is constitutional based on the commerce. We, we can, we can, that can be debated, but the Second Amendment is very clear. It's in plain English. And when you violate it, and you violate it and, and, and make fun of the people who disagree with you in such a flagrant manner, there are lots of people out there that could be on our side on just about everything else. And the other reason that we shouldn't do it is just, it's just the wrong thing to do. It's just wrong to paint Everyone who disagrees with us is a stereotype. There's no quality debate that comes from that. There's also the final is the final sin is the massive logical inconsistency. That a good guy somehow will be able to defend himself against attackers with a really small capacity of in his gun. But a bad guy somehow will be stymied in his efforts to shoot at a fleeing mob. At people who are out buying pants at the Gap. And next thing they know they're getting shot at. Somehow the magazine capacity of his gun is going to stymie him more than the person who's got someone violently attacking them. We'll go into that in our next episode. The bad guy becomes Superman when he has a gun. The good guy becomes a bumbling idiot. We all become Barney, Barney Fife. Except evil, bizarro world Barney Fife. We're not only, we're not only ignorant, we aren't, we're not only incapable of using a gun to defend ourselves, but we're, we're, we become a little bit evil by having them. We talk about teachers that love and sacrifice for their children in their classroom and jump between their children and a rifle. And then in that same discussion, we talk about how teachers can't be trusted because they would endanger the lives of their children. We're supposed to rely on our police for our protection, but we're supposed to keep them away from our children. This points to deeper issues in our society. Now, as a radical, and I do consider myself a radical, radical doesn't mean I break windows. It doesn't mean I am running around in the streets with a mask on, throwing things at cops. What it means is I examine these assumptions. I examine you've got to examine the air you breathe, so to speak, every now and then. Examine the assumptions behind all of these things. Examine the arguments. Examine the form of them. 
and ask, are we really pushing for all these laws because they're what's, what will work? Or are we pushing for them because, well, I'm not pushing for them, but are liberals pushing for these laws because right now they have a violent, terrible act that was committed by a, a person with a terrible-looking gun? And so it may not be the right thing, but cynically we're going to move forward and we're going to ban that kind of gun to make it look like we're doing something about this when we've done nothing to protect from this happening again. Because it's hard to talk about mental health and really go into that. It's hard to talk about you know, our schools. It's hard to talk about the, all of the other factors that go into this being a problem. It's hard to talk about racism. It's hard to talk about the ridiculous state of our college education system. It's hard to talk about all these other things that can make all these early 20-somethings go nuts. And if we don't start looking at this in a better way, if we don't stop having Rachel Maddow argue with Ted Nugent over this, if we don't depend on ourselves to come up with a better set of arguments and a better set of solutions, what we're going to have is an infringement of freedoms for millions that does nothing to protect the people it was meant to protect. This episode is from Sunday, February 17th, and this is the first episode of the Radical Liberal Gun Guy podcast. Thank you for listening. If you find this discussion stimulating, recommend it to a friend. There is a YouTube channel, again, the Radlib Gun Guy YouTube channel, R-A-D-L-I-B-G-U-N-G-U-I, all one word, which will have other playlists and so forth for reference. Eventually I will have some videos up there to demonstrate certain technical issues that I believe are important when it comes to legislation, when, I, when it comes to explaining the theory and the ethics and the legality of self-defense. We'll go into police, crime, military, collateral damage, all of those types of subjects from the perspective of someone who not only has some experience in firearms and self-defense, but is also a radical, progressive, liberal guy. And I hope that I can contribute to the conversation. I haven't heard a good liberal voice on this, so I decided, what the hell, maybe I'll try to be that voice, or one of those voices. And thank you for listening, and please recommend it to a friend. Thank you.